I took multiple years of Japanese in college because I was resistant to learning French. High school and university. I took like eight years of Japanese and passed a government fluency exam. Wow. All because my parents told me to learn French and I was feeling rebellious. Then I had to double down. <laughs> <laughs> I I am willing to take this way farther than it ever needed to go. I will not learn about my own culture. Thank you very much. And now I can't speak my partner's native language. <laughs> I've never used Japanese even once. <laughs> but now I can't talk to my in-laws. <laughs> what a wonderful series of decisions I have made. 14-year-old uh, Janelle did not know she'd be shacking up with a Frenchman. It's not in the plans. Damn it, boy. Why can't you just be a little bit more Japanese? Really, he should meet you halfway. You put a lot of work into that. His in-laws should learn Japanese for you. I just think that would be a good way to welcome you into the family. I'm not sure how much unhinged xenophobia is going to get me in with the in-laws, but <laughs> give it a shot. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a tower, I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Welcome back to Histories and Mysteries. I am Jessica. And I am Janelle. And today's topic I am very, almost inappropriately excited for because it is Mishima Yukio, or Yukio Mishima, due to an unfortunate translating uh, uh, norm that I am extremely annoyed by. Did you know that, like, we are still switching around the first and last names of Japanese people? Like, we all don't just know that they put their last names first? Like, yeah, I, it's... <laughs> I am so frustrated by that. I had to switch around every single surname and first name so that they'd be right. <laughs> yeah, we'll be using uh, Japanese naming conventions in this episode. Because... I don't understand why we don't. <laughs> <laughs> because I would be very annoyed if a Japanese person made a podcast about me and put my name backwards. Yeah. I don't know why a Japanese person would make a podcast about me. I haven't killed anybody just yet. But uh, <laughs> when the day comes. If we're talking about Pijo Jessica, we just talk about me like that the entire time. It feels weird. It's not, um, it's not right. Yeah, but M Mishima was a celebrated and prolific 20th century actor, director, model, poet, playwright, and especially author. To this day, he's considered one of the most important Japanese writers of the era, though many of his works remain untranslated in English. He was even three times in contention for the Nobel Prize in Literature. But, as longtime listeners might suspect, an illustrious art career is not how you end up on this podcast. You really buried the lead when you listed his occupations. There's another one in there that's coming, and it's so good. <laughs> he did those things, yes. but he had another occupation. There's another title. Just just wait for it. His poetry was beautiful. His plays were dramatic, but they are not as important as what you're about to learn next. Uh, <laughs> Mishima was wildly popular and internationally renowned during his life, but on the internet he is best known for a snacky bit of trivia concerning his bizarre death. 
namely that he died in a 1970 uh, attempted coup against the democratic government of Japan in an attempt to reinstate the divine sovereignty of the emperor, very much against the wishes of the said emperor. (laughs) (laughs) He has the resume I want. Author, writer, beloved public figure, imperialist cult leader who died violently. (laughs) It's it's everything a little girl dreams of. You know, I have always dreamed of starting a cult, but even I had never conceived, never dreamt of non-consensually instating an emperor. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I'm so excited. And for the sake of a Western comparison, this is a bit like if Hunter S. Thompson had shot Richard Nixon with a Revolutionary War-era musket dressed like Abraham Lincoln. That's so uh, specific. <laughs> it's so upsettingly specific. It's even weirder, though, because Mishima was always sober, though equally prone to Aloha shirts. It's like if Ernest Hemingway had stormed the Capitol, if he was the guy in buffalo horns. Like, you need to get exactly how weird this is. Like, he was a celebrity. I like that you went for an example of a popular American author and you went to Hunter S. Thompson. You are such a nerd. Well, I mean, I thought about doing Tennessee Williams because, like, Mishima and Williams were friends. But uh, Hunter S. Thompson is, I think, way more similar to Mishima in that he was a suicidal weirdo. Somewhere in his grave, Mark Twain is like, am I a joke to you, Jessica? (laughs) I went for the same arrow, okay? (laughs) You've got a lot of authors. Not many of them wear Aloha shirts. (laughs) What a nerd. Mishima was born January 14th. 1925, under the name Hiraoka Kimitake in Tokyo. His mother, Shizue, was the quiet, well-read daughter of a middle school principal and descended from a long line of teachers and academics. His father, Hiraoka Azusa, was a pragmatic, somewhat mythanthropic man and a second-generation bureaucrat from a former peasant family. However, his paternal grandmother, Natsu, was herself the granddaughter of the daimyo of Shishido, a feudal lord. This in turn means that Kimitake was a descendant of Tokugawa Ieyasu, the founder and first shogun of the Tokugawa Shogunate, a feudal military government which ruled Japan from 1603 to 1868. Okay, so still not exactly what I would consider like fertile grounds for a cult leader's childhood. <laughs> like... <laughs> oh, don't worry, Janelle. It gets better. <laughs> oh, good. Because I was like, so far, like, this is a kid who's going to be a bit of a dick at private school. But uh, we're not mm. quite a cult leader just yet. No. Uh, see, interestingly enough, uh, his family lost the peerage uh, due to the fact they were the long, the wrong side of the uh, Meiji Restoration, I believe. They were not grandfathered into the peerage. Uh, so, in fact, despite the fact he went to an aristocratic school, it was the other kids who were a dick to him. <laughs> Aw, bullying. Yeah, and like, bullying by like, the sons of of the peers. So really ostentatious, highbrow bullying. (laughs) Once again, bullying is an origin story for like, violent governmental overthrow. Him and Stalin, man. (laughs) Like a lot, a lot of these kids used to get called sir by the teachers. Like, you need to understand the level (laughs) Of obnoxious aristocracy going on here. Oof. Oof, this is some high level. This is something of an unusual situation. Uh, The daughter of nobility marrying the son of a peasant. 
even one with a prestigious degree and a promising government career. Uh, it can likely be explained by Nagai Natsu's somewhat unstable temperament. Namely, she tended She's too bitchy to marry a lord? Is that what you're sticks. getting at? <laughs> yeah, essentially. She was the eldest of 12 children, and according to tradition, the family couldn't marry off any of their <laughs> other children without they getting They just unloaded her, her on the first uh, fucking was, soul wow. would have her. Basically, they're just like, oh, he can't do better. There, out you go. All right. Wow. That this is looking up. <laughs> yeah. And and whatever mental issues Natsu may have had were possibly exacerbated by the stress of her marriage to Mishima's grandfather Jotaro, who was governor of the Japanese prefecture of South Sankalen, an island that was then wasn't then was once again part of the Russian Empire through the course of the 20th century. He was forced to resign from his position after a scandal where the politicians behind his appointment pressured him into the corrupt That's sale the of fishing dumbest and scandal ever. licenses. That's so boring. It's incredible. Like, if you're going to have it's a political scandal, please Canadian hire scandals. someone to pee on you. At the very minimum. <laughs> I do. <laughs> at, I demand it. If water sports are not involved, then in a pinch, like, a, 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 an abortion scandal I'm will do. But I, I'm absolutely horrified that you knew the correct term for... <laughs> I am horrified that you knew the correct term for that. Uh, blah. <laughs> yeah. I knew it. I'm just, it's uh, like finding out a kindergartner <laughs> knows what fisting is. It's upsetting. <laughs> I know many things, most of them horrifying. Uh,. I just, it, 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 it is one of those things where I'm just like, I may not have a lot of experience with <laughs> this, but boy do I know the technical term. I, I'm not, I, see, I'm less good with the uh, the You're just like, tell it to me straight, what part of the body's going up the ass? What do, explain a rim job. <laughs> oh, God. Analingus, got it. <laughs> That is what I, that, that's the thing, is like, I, I'm not comfortable saying rim job, I'm not comfortable tossing salad makes me, makes me feel odd, it feels disrespectful <laughs> to Thousand Island, I don't know, uh, like, like, if, if, and if you're gonna call it tossing salad, uh, you should at the very uh, will, at oh, least be willing no. to use ranch's lube. No, don't put a dairy-based <laughs> cream sauce in your body, oh my god, no, the smell, oh my god. <laughs> Right up the butt. Oh my god, it burns. It I'll burns take a vinaigrette so and a pinch. <laughs> uh, but Jotaro then floundered as a private entrepreneur, uh, squandering the wealth he had inherited from his father, a successful Ooh. farmer, and putting the family heavily into debt. He was apparently quite gallant and well-mannered, oh. but likewise a frequent drinker <laughs> those, and those womanizer. Those things don't really go together. <laughs> He's... No. Uh, gallant towards everybody except <laughs> gallant his wife. philandering uh... man-beast. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, I read that, and I'm just like, mm. like it's just like he's a really nice guy, except for that thing where he beats his kids. You know. <laughs> All right. Well, he holds that the door feels like open a pretty important exception, wife, I guess. <laughs> Natsu was intelligent and cultured, but likewise prone to extravagance, forcing the family to live well beyond their means, including renting a home in a fashionable part of the city and keeping several maids, which she thought as fitting her aristocratic heritage. In her manic phases, she was enigmatic and a gifted storyteller and would impress upon young Kimitake her own grand, nostalgic, aristocratic aesthetic. But she likewise often suffered nerve pain in her back and hip, which made her miserable. Texts published by both Mishima and his father implied that this nerve pain might have been the result of chronic gonorrhea oh. acquired through her husband's philandering. Oh, I'd kill a man. Gotta say, rough. I, I I'm not willing to to go too far here. Oh my god, that is a penisectomy offense. You're gonna that is you're gonna Lorena Bobbitt, you lose man. your That's dick great. for that. Awesome. <laughs> Deeply disturbing. <laughs> so this is this is basically a perfect storm. You have a child learning stories of the good old days from his manic depressive mother, who is also riddled with gonorrhea and in a great deal of pain. Grandmother. As his parents' marriage fall apart, and he gets teased for the fact that he no longer has noble status. There's no way this ends poorly. Oh no. <laughs> oh, it gets worse. Uh so I, I gave you this portrait of Mishima's grandmother because she was perhaps the most important figure in his early childhood. When Kimitake was only 50 days old, Natsu removed him from Shizue's care, moving his crib into her dark sick room on the ground floor, arguing that it was safer there. She then guarded him with jealousy from anyone who would take his attention away from her, including his own parents, returning him to his mother to nurse every four hours. Even then, she monitored Shizue with young Kimitake. Oh, so straight the up feeding sessions with Mom a is just watch. a milk dispenser. That's 100% of the maternal role now. Yeah, and Natsu took very little interest in either of her other grandchildren. Later, when the family moved to, into two houses on the same street, uh, when Kimitake was nine... Azusa, Shizue, and their younger children lived in one house, while Kimitake and his grandparents lived in the other. Natsu's overprotective streak meant that he was only allowed a small number of specially selected playmates, three older female cousins, as his grandmother viewed boys as dangerous. His early play mostly involved quiet games of house or dolls in Natsu's shuttered sickroom, any toy or object Natsu deemed disruptive or dangerous was immediately taken away from him. He was banned from climbing the stairs after a tumble at the age of two, which had the added benefit of preventing him from visiting his mother in her room when Natsu was out of the house. He was only rarely allowed outside, and then only in perfect weather and heavily bundled until March or April, oh, despite his mother's yeah, attempt to get him out of the house. All of this is sounding super healthy. I have a whole ass master's degree in psychology, and this is what we recommend for a healthy childhood. <laughs> Just grandma putting four layers on you so you can venture out of the house in Japan in March. <laughs> it's only seeing your mother so you can suck on her boobs and then going right back to grandma's syphilitic sick room. <laughs> no problems there. Basically a parenting <laughs> manual. 
<laughs> Obviously, don't do this. This is this is borderline illegal. Please don't don't do this. <laughs> this is You're not a recommendation. You will get your child taken away. Natsu was domineering, and her son Azusa was well under her thumb and indifferent to his wife's unhappiness. Only rarely would Kimitake's father fight his grandmother for a few small freedoms for his son. If, at any point, little Kimitake demonstrated any apparent preference for his mother, even something so simple as asking her for help before asking his grandmother, Natsu would fly into a rage, often retaliating well, again, against Shizue for the perceived slight. Yeah, because now we have a problem where in order to make his grandmother, who he, he loves her very dearly, and he also he also eventually becomes very fond of his mother, and in order to protect his mother from his grandmother, cool, he cool, has cool, cool, to cool, pretend cool. not Every to care about her. Every fucking nine-year-old has the emotional depth to balance that. That's fine. Shortly before turning five, Kimitake suffered a violent oh. vomiting spell and what appeared to be a brief coma. While he regained consciousness that night and recovered over the next week, he continued to suffer similar spells that left him hospitalized on a monthly basis for the next year, a condition that oh, suddenly he was being resolved poisoned. when I'm he began attending school. This is some Munchausen shit. <laughs> <laughs> There's two options here. Like, uh, Shizue's brother, who's a doctor, is called over, and he diagnoses this as auto-intoxication. Like, he thinks the kid swallowed something. Right. One, this kid is so monitored. There is no way he is eating this same thing every month. And it's weird even for him to continue these spells after he's recovered if it's, like, not- he's not being intermittently poisoned. So either A, uh, this is Munchausen's by proxies, someone is poisoning him, or B, and like, we don't be. really know, this is like psychosomatic on some level. Either they're poisoning him or they are stressing him and ending out up to in the, the hospital that for dehydration. puking constantly. <laughs> School was nonetheless Aww. a miserable experience for Kimitake, who was both frail and effeminate, as well as a commoner in a school dominated by sons of the aristocracy. His grandmother's meddling followed him even there, and she had excused him from both physical exertion and the school cafeteria, keeping him on a bland diet, as well as any this and all This kid's just, like, alone in a uh, back room eating white grade. rice by himself. It's, again, what a healthy childhood. <laughs> If it had been an art form back in the day, she would have banned him from, like, macaroni collages just because he might cut himself on a rogue noodle. Much of Mishima's art was in some way autobiographical. And his second novel, Confessions of a Mask, Mishima writes about a physically weak homosexual boy who is prevented from socializing with other boys and is thus never socialized to act like one or interact with them. In his isolation, he develops a vivid internal fantasy life filled with homoerotic scenes of idealized violence and death. Even Mishima's first sexual awakening is heavily tinged with sadomasochism. At 12, he had stumbled upon some art books hidden by his father for their large collection of female nudes, and found himself aroused instead by a portrait of Saint Sebastian. 
for our our non-Catholic <laughs> listeners, which I assume is most of them, uh, Saint Sebastian, he's this naked youth, and like he's he's stabbed with like a whole bunch of arrows. But he's always, like, laying there all sensual, like, draw me like one of your French You martyrs, should look up no? a picture of St. Sebastian. I promise every <laughs> artist's rendering is kind of like this. Always. And I don't understand when this started. I don't understand why it happened. But every single artist from the Renaissance on draws St. Sebastian... Like, he is at an orgy, just getting <laughs> plowed by some, archers. Some lord like, I who commissioned don't these paintings was, like, leaning over the painter's shoulder being like, Make it more supple, more nubile. Show those buttocks. But I just, I like that his grandma was, like, trying to shield him, trying to protect him. And instead, this kid ends up, like, sitting in some back classroom at school, eating a big thing of rice, thinking about testicles and death. Like, that's... You know, like a normal boy, just alone in his <laughs> dorm room, because he's not allowed to have any friends or go outside, just jerking off to the idea of getting stabbed. That's normal. That's fine. All of this is fine. <laughs> so, so normal. I was thinking about putting a warning in this, and I probably should put in a warning. Like, we're going to be talking about suicide a lot. That's the topic today. If you're this kind of person who can't handle that, you are responsible for your own engagement with the internet. Turn the podcast off. Uh, but you should also probably know that this is going to be I'm, the it's upsetting horniest episode we have ever done. Horniest and the most disturbing. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, and, and here's the thing. like, I have no textual evidence that this man ever had any sexual relationship with another man. I don't know if he ever did. It's it just all he was of thinking his about it a lot. He's so <laughs> sexual. Had a lot of time on <laughs> his hands just to think about this. So sexual. <laughs> when you've been banned from everything fun from the age of 0 to 18, <laughs> yeah, when you, you give get a, a lot of free boy time. A lot of free time. <laughs> he f- he discovers his penis in a big way. It 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 doesn't end well. He doesn't discover <laughs> other things. No. I think if the incel movement had, has taught us anything, learning how to no, masturbate before you not. learn how to make a friend isn't good for you. At this time, oh. Kimitake still slept in his grandmother's room and now played the role of nurse, feeding her medicine, mopping her brow, helping her to the bathroom, massaging her back and hip. When she woke from pain in the night, he, she would cry and demand that he comfort her. During at least one incident, she held a knife oh. to her own throat, screaming that she would kill herself. As her illness progressed, Jotaro began pressuring her to release Kimitake into the custody of his own parents. Finally, after a year, in March 1937... I mean, you could do a lot of damage to a person old, before their 12th relented. birthday. That's... Absolutely. That's when you can do the most damage. It's the best bang for your buck. <laughs> so the move back to his parents was initially marked by the joy of his mother, who immediately looked for a larger house, giving her newly returned son his own room for the very first time. This was also, however, the first time he had lived with his father while Azusa was outside the control of Natsu. 
and while he was unkind to both his wife and all of his children, he was especially hard on Kimitake, and sought to correct the effeminacy of his grandmother's raising and his son's degenerate interest in fiction. He would snatch books of literature from his son's hand and either tear them apart or throw them across the room. Later, when his son's ambitions became more serious, in his late teens, Azusa would likewise raid Kimitake's room and I have been discouraged from, like, working on my fiction because I felt itchy. Like, I'm not sure how well I would have persevered to, like, years of relentless abuse <laughs> that included a parent destroying my work in front of me. That's, that's some dedication. Boy like literature. He did in deed to an almost unbelievable degree. He if I send out like a good tweet per day, I consider like era. my creative output complete. So <laughs> this is impressive. Uh, after a promotion led uh, Azusa to decamp the house for Osaka in January uh, 1938, he was rarely in the home, allowing Shizue to indulge her son's love of writing and art, in particular by taking him to the theater. His first play was the 47 Ronin, a kabuki classic, sparking a lifelong obsession with the form. It is likewise at this time that he joined his school's poetry club and began to publish his own poems, which he had been writing since preschool. He likewise published a weirdly homoerotic short story about a young boy who befriends an escaped con convict gu guilty of filicide. Even in his teenage works, there is already an aesthetic idealization and conflation of a longing for beauty, passionate ecstasy, and death. Often violent death, particularly suicide. There is an almost erotic fatalism to basically everything he writes. It's also, <laughs> frankly, gay as shit. I mean, I'm sure it it's excellent. Who doesn't love some gay so much. death eroticism? I certainly do as much as the next person, but... All right. He's very young to be writing this. Here's one from when he turned 15. Your hand trembles in mine. Like a frightened pigeon, I fear. Your pink beak will peck, my youth, the only fruit. Morning. The forest shadows on this side of the forest. The fountain gushes and quickly like, subsides. Like, it's really good, but he's 15? Like, oh my god. <laughs> Can you imagine publishing that at 15? Can you imagine I mean, showing 15, that I basically to another wanted human to look being? At me ever at all. <laughs> no. If anybody had looked in my notebooks at 15, I would have run away from home and drowned myself. But, like, nobody in this kid's life was like, we should probably ask him, like, hey, is everything okay at home? You write some, some stuff, buddy. Imagine the confidence it would take to be just all like, Hey everybody, here's here's my fountain ejaculation metaphors. Please enjoy these. Applaud. Honestly, if you do that today, you're getting a call from the principal. You are getting a trip, one-way trip to the school if you psychologist. Said the word to me, I would launch myself into the outer reaches of the solar system. Like, no. There's not a chance I would be writing about orgasmic pleasure for a school newspaper. And this might be described as perhaps the most normal period in Mishima's early years, where he developed a closeness with his siblings and especially his mother. Even into his adult life, he remained utterly devoted to her, referring to her as Okasama, 
a rather formal, precious form of address that earned him the nickname yeah, Mother Japanese Dear. Yeah, Japanese kids call their the mom actors ha-ha. in his first it's, no-play. Uh, it's like, mom. Uh, Okasama is like if you're introducing your yeah. mother at a formal event. It's the formal version, but yeah, it means like lady mother. It. it would be like if you called your dad esteemed father at the dinner table. Like it's not, if you're not at your own wedding, it's not really necessary. Like, <laughs> no, it's it's very weird. Like if you're not introducing your mom at like a wedding, a funeral, a or to it's the bit, queen. This kid was basically it's very forty weird. from the time he was five. Like this kid didn't. He kind of skipped the childhood parts of his life. Yes. The the translator I'm reading, uh, John Nathan, refers to his early works as precocious, but like, dude was born 300 <laughs> years. This is too what late happens when your only company in early life is an elderly woman who has a lot of anger about sex. Like this is what happens. He still called his grandmother every day and stayed at her house once a week until her death two years later. At 12, he was pale, thin, and looked between three or four years younger than he truly was. He remained relatively small as an adult, standing only uh, 155 centimeters, or five foot one. Yeah, short, although not as short as it sounds to a modern audience. The average height of a 17-year-old Japanese boy from Kimitaki's age cohort was 162 centimeters, or 5 foot 3. This means that the average height of a World War II Japanese soldier is also (laughs) the average height of a host of this podcast. (laughs) Just an army of us. (laughs) George! (laughs) I have two inches on World War II Japanese soldiers, and I have no idea how to cope with that. And, and like the average Leonard, American soldier American was five foot actually. nine. People, people are shorter than you think. It's it's remained pretty static. They've for gone Americans. through a big shift in diet. Like <laughs> Japanese people have gotten taller. Mm-hmm. Mostly due to increases in nutrition, but the average like American uh, farm boy at the time today, was pretty well fed. I tweet taller than that. I've thought about it every day since. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, guess I'm to tell like, you, just you got the big way dick you present energy? yourself on Twitter, you seem taller than that. I was like, I think you have a deeply unhealthy way of envisioning people you only know from the internet. Please stop imagining how tall I am. <laughs> mm, mm. Kind of reminds me of like every time, like people who've met me you in are. person often comment that I'm very short. And here's the thing, I, I'm average. I, I'm average height. <laughs> I just <You're>... feel short. <laughs> You're dull. I've got a very short dialect. personality, even in person. <laughs> so as an actually as an actor, like this is this is a fun fact. Uh, Mishima would insist that the actresses were shorter than him. And when he agreed to an arranged marriage at the age of 33, his only stipulations okay, were that so he's his bride be shorter insecure. than him and uninterested can... in his work. He doesn't want his wife to know he's writing gay stuff, and he's so deeply insecure much. about his height. It's specifically he's physically insecure. 
he's always been physically frail. And while he may have the confidence to just look his teacher in the eye and <laughs> submit his wet dreams as homework, oh, like guy. he does not feel good about himself physically. Uh, with his earliest school publications, Kimitake's precocious talent attracted the attention of other, often much older literary aficionados, many of whom attempted to place themselves in the position of mentor. The first, Bojo Toshitami, an older student at the same school, though eight years Kimitake's senior, began a long and extensive correspondence with Kimitake when he was 12. Kimitake abruptly ended the relationship four years later, now viewing his friend as mediocre and beneath his notice, though this likewise coincided roughly with Bojo sending him a short story about an affair between a university student and a married woman oh, that he claimed was based so on his much own going personal on experiences. There. You just... There's, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. I, I, I read that and I'm like, I don't know what that, that I means. people for being artistically beneath my notice. It'll never happen. I'm a hack Twitter comedian who writes fake news about Canada. <laughs> I can dream. <laughs> we can all dream, Janelle. Someday. I I wish to reach the height of heights where I can at the age of what was it? 16? <laughs> At 16, I could just tell an adult man that his art is uh, trite. Next next year, you're going to hear about me calling John Mulaney a <laughs> You're going to fly right into the face. sun, are you? <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to become a good enough comedian to, to meet the greats and then just absolutely torpedo okay. any hope I have a relationship <laughs> with them. <laughs> This would also become a pattern in Mishima's relationship, where he was always the first to distance himself, often to the shock and confusion of the other party. Kimitake almost immediately switched to another largely correspondence-based relationship with another young man several years his senior, Azuma Fumihiko, uh, who Kimitake only met once oh, in person due to the fact that he was that dying of tuberculosis. Fumihiko spent much of his time desperately writing, despite being bedridden. When he died in 1943, Kimitake wrote a eulogy for the school journal, and years later, a few months before his own death, requested that one of his publishers introduce a volume of Azuma's okay, work so this alongside is like one of an introduction the very written by Mishima himself. In his life with someone who just immediately died. Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Right. There was a it's lot easy of to posthumous the dead. hero worship here. Because they can never yeah, this guy's never gonna themselves rob mediocre or flawed. It's because <laughs> he died before he ever could. They never get to meet in person, which means that every interaction they have, they can plan out perfectly through writing letters. Right. You don't get introduced to a person's flaws that way. If your flaws come out you during a letter what writing, of them they want some, you to see deep flaws. Uh, another mentor, Shimizu Fumio, asked Kimitake to submit writing to his literary magazine in 1941, which became Kimitake's first serious publication at the age of 16. The work was published under the name Mishima Yukio, in no small part to hide his literary ambitions from his father. The name was chosen by the adult editors of the magazine after the name of a train station, Mishima, and That's the snow on adorable. Mount Fuji because they were pretentious hoes. 
Mishima's early work is considered to be part of the Japanese Romantic School, a literary movement defined heavily by idealization of the past and elevation of beauty as a paramount value, even to the point of dying in its pursuit. Japanese romantics, with their emphasis on tradition, in turn tended towards strong nationalistic instincts. Their worship of the classic Japanese canon and artistic forms was matched by an adoration of the Japanese emperor, who by tradition was considered divine. Indeed, the two were considered to be related, in that the beauty of Japanese classics stood as irrefutable evidence of that imperial divinity. It also walked this fine line between literary school and, you know, death cult. So while this kind of nationalism, alongside its emphasis on purity, bloodline, and the cultural superiority of one nation above all others, is often associated with xenophobia and racism, Mishima himself appears to have been reasonably cosmopolitan in his personal life. By all accounts, he was disgusted by his father's admiration for the Nazis, Ooh. and as an adult, he was friendly with foreigners. He was well-versed and valued the artistic traditions of other cultures, especially <laughs> those of historical grace, because of course he did. Even with his resentment of the limitations and penalties the United States placed on Japan after World War II, he held no apparent anger towards individual Americans. Likewise, he seemed to greatly enjoy various trips he took to the West as an adult, particularly to Greece. Even when he began to identify with ultranationalism and express ideas that Japan should reject foreigners, he remained I mean, desperate. Ultranationalist fascism rarely follows a clear line of logic. Uh, when Mishima graduated from high school at the top of his class, he personally oh. received a silver watch from Emperor Hirohito and was apparently deeply touched. His first book, A Forest in Full Flower, a collection of short stories, was published the following month, a rare thing in October of 1944, right. during, you know, the firebombing of Tokyo. And they were required to petition the government for paper. <laughs> It was hardly a grand debut and only received a limited printing. Mishima was satisfied, however, seeing it as the capstone on his literary career that would allow him to meet his fast-approaching enlistment Whoa. and inevitable Whoa. death with a clear yeah, I forgot heart. about that part. <laughs> I kind of forgot the... Yeah. I forgot about the military conscription Whoops, bit. it's I, the 1940s! <laughs> I guess, yeah. Oof, that's a, that's a tough thing to face it, like... What is he now? Yeah, 18? yeah. He's like, well, I've achieved everything I've needed to in life. Time to die. Yep. Death for the Emperor. Having, like, a perfectly innocent story of literary ambitions thwarted by child abuse, yeah, and yeah. suddenly the World War II looms in. Mishima enrolled in law school by the demand of his father, but the class was oh. immediately redirected to an assignment <laughs> at an airplane factory. Which does not seem like I hate it when I go to learn law and then they make me build airplanes. <laughs> That's most inconvenient. Mishima actually received a medical exemption from physical labor and was instead assigned to an undemanding office job that allowed him to focus on writing. In February 1945, Mishima got his draft summons. He was classified as 2B. History of illness, but eligible for duty, uh, considering for health. His father had pushed him to register, not in Tokyo, but at the Hiraoka's traditional home in the village, Shikata, where he would be competing not against fellow weak city boys, but rather robust countrymen. 
Right. Trying to, like, trying to give him a fighting chance against here. him actually getting selected. <laughs> a fighting chance not to fight. After traveling to Shikata with his family the day before he was due to report, Mishima had a high temperature, possibly from exertion. This developed into a cough and elevated fever that ramped up over the course of the night, to the point that a doctor was called. At his medical examination the next day, uh, after reporting for duty, oh. the doctor diagnosed him with advanced tuberculosis oh. and declared him unfit for military service. This was later corrected by a second doctor. Really jumped Tokyo, the gun on that one. You're not dying. You'll be fine next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the sort of thing where, like, you would expect him to, like, ask for a history and ask how long he's had this cough. Uh, Mishima's younger brother, Chiyuki, claims that this may have been a case of sympathy rather than incompetence on the part of the first doctor, who might have intentionally misconstrued the symptoms as an excuse oh. not to send an obviously frail young man to war. Right. Like, and here's, They're here's like, the that thing. seems like, incorrect. They kind of like, know that it's wrong. Tuberculosis doesn't get you that fast. But his father is just like, let's get <laughs> Tuberculosis, you say, thank you, doctor, we'll be going. Um, <laughs> it's like when the cashier, like, accidentally yeah, grab the boy and run. Price, or she accidentally gives you a huge discount and you just mm -hmm. kind of rush to the parking lot before she can correct her error. Like, <laughs> uh, While his family was overjoyed, uh, Mishima was far more ambivalent and confused even by his own relief. It's not clear whether Mishima participated in the examiner's lie, but he certainly didn't fight it either. He had spent a large part of his adolescence fantasizing about death, but in the face of its reality, he balked. Mishima had dreamt of sacrificing his life in service of the Emperor, but while he was ostensibly assigned to the war effort, his deferment from physical labor meant that he spent I the mean, war it's, it's reading classical literature and that writing you his own die works. for your country at the age of 18. But the reality of it is never quite as glamorous as one would hope. And the thing is, like, he probably never would have even died in battle. He just he gets probably a foot fungus died in basic trench, training. That's pretty much it for him. <laughs> foot fungus <laughs> in the trench. It's gonna, gonna be get the athlete's foot in the fucking gym. <laughs> It's gonna take him out. Like he hasn't yeah. been allowed to Combat jog since the age of two. <laughs> Stairs banned. The moment he just learned how to was run, it was, was banned. Just sadness and white rice. Now, this is an attitude towards death that is fairly alien to the modern Western audience. Accepting the possibility that one might die in defense of one's community is a pretty standard trait of most forms of patriotism, as is canonizing war dead into a secular quasi-sainthood. But that's not quite the same thing as valorizing a literal death wish. By the early 20th century, Japanese nationalism had a prominent and deeply weird hard-on for dying horribly for honor and the emperor. Yeah, I mean, like, it's obviously, not like, just modern Asian culture doesn't have the same valorization of death. But they have a very different take on death to this day than Western culture. No. If you ever watch Japanese children's movies, you'll be struck by how frank they are about death and dying. They really don't shy away from it or shield children from it at all. They don't have the same inability to speak to children about death. And, and to be blunt, 
Japan is also just way more down with suicide than other developed countries. Suicide is a prominent theme in much of their traditional art and was a big part of the culture of the military elites that led the country through much of its recent history. An underappreciated aspect of the whole who would win knights, vikings, or samurai debate is the fact that the Viking era started in the late 8th century and ended in the mid-11th, and the slightly longer run of the knights stretched all the way from the 12th century to the 16th, when they were rendered essentially obsolete by advances in military technology, particularly the proliferation of firearms. The hereditary Japanese military classes of shoguns, daimyos, and samurai, on the other hand, lasted from the 12th century until they were dissolved as a class in the 1870s as part of the Meiji Restoration. Like, samurai had largely lost their military function over the course of the peaceful Edo period under the rule of the Tokugawa shogunate and become something much more similar to stewards and household managers with extensive managerial skills and swords for some reason. They still continued martial training and maintained their traditional Bushido moral code, but they they weren't constantly at war, samurai, you know, you know, fighting for you know their lords the way they were they back to in do. the olden days. <laughs> but like they were still samurai. They're just less busy samurai with like some basic like, administrative skills. Like they they knew like they knew how to run a household. <laughs> they the could do some XL, you know, basic stuff. The Tokugawan shogunate was likewise an era of relative isolation. Japan had heavily restricted trade with the West to a few peripheral port towns that were themselves heavily controlled and isolated. They likewise banned Japanese citizens from leaving. They still, however, engaged in fairly extensive trade with select partners such as the Chinese, the Koreans, the Ainu, and the Dutch. That is a very strange... Um, the Ainu live in Japan. But... <laughs> the... The Chinese are right there. It's yeah, I a know. long way. The Koreans and the Chinese are right nearby. Yeah, well, all these white devils are, and their ideology the are Ainu dangerous. Are white, complicated. Except for you, <laughs> Holland. You're cool. The Ainu are, are, are a very complicated topic. But, uh, yeah, but the, so the Dutch, the Netherlands are a hike. You can't just head over there for supper. It's <laughs> From Japan to the Netherlands is a, is a real journey. We in the West tend to talk about Japanese isolationism as if they were completely isolated, rather than <laughs> yeah, that they, they were, were just ignoring they us. They were just done with us, and then we concluded, <laughs> oh, if they're not talking to us, they're clearly not talking to anybody. Who else would be worth talking to? So this lasted for around 214 years until Matthew Perry, Commodore of the United States Navy and Chandler from Friends, arrived in the Bay of Edo with four large steam-powered battleships, just demanding that the borders Chandler be open to Friends. trade through show of force. Damn it, Jessica. <laughs> it... uh, I See, I've made that... I've made similar jokes about names that for people one, in the past yeah, several times, but that, that one's one still my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> just imagining Demanding him in like a little Commodore's hat. with Japan, <laughs> as one does before one stars in Friends. Like Just pouting at the Emperor. 
So like <laughs> Japan is just like we were on a break and it's oh mm. good a '90s sitcom understanding of Japanese geopolitics in the 20th century. Loving it. I'm gonna wedge that in there. Next time I'm gonna reference Seinfeld. I don't know how, but <laughs> so, I'm gonna manage oh God, it. God, I will I'm make gonna it work fit. that in. Matthew Perry is really oh, the Kramer of this relationship, tired. just busting in without being asked. Yeah, me neither. I never saw Friends. I have I watched used to get neither of them. Very shows. drunk and order pancakes at the diner from Seinfeld all the time, and never saw the show. But yeah, the staff are very hostile. It's wonderful. Oh yeah, you brought me there. But uh, this was a shock to the system of Japanese elites, who realized that in their isolation, the outside world had technologically and militarily overtaken them. What followed is the Meiji Restoration, a period of rapid modernization and reform, including the transition from a military largely consisting of, of, of an elite aristocratic class of highly trained feudal warriors to a German-style mass conscription army. But the samurai didn't just disappear. Samurai families made up around 5% of the population at this point. They couldn't just disappear. Rather, they were heavily incorporated into the Japanese military and bureaucracy, and they took their samurai values with them, heavily influencing those institutions as well as the broader Japanese society and popularizing Bushido-based yeah, ethics of duty, loyalty, and honor that. until death. Ritualized suicide is, has been a part of, of samurai culture for a while. That's the thing, is like, knights had this sort of like chivalry where like oh yeah like you you do what you need to but like you it's still trying to get out of there run alive. if you're being routed <laughs> like in samurai code one of the most honorable most beautiful things you could do was die pointlessly even though you knew you couldn't win and you knew you could gain nothing by doing There's so. There's also a very different like, take was, on, on suicide during point. battle <laughs> as sort of honorable. In Western culture, killing yourself because you're losing a battle is seen as, like, cowardice. But it's considered brave. Yeah. It, it has a very different mm -hmm. connotation. It's not and the wasteful. same, like, you know, if, mm -hmm. if, if in Western culture for, for, you know, hundreds of years, if you committed suicide, that's a secret your family would take to their own graves. Like... It couldn't be known that you had someone in the family. It's the who influence of Christianity. It was the height of shame for a very long time. Yeah, even to the point where, like, if you find out that someone has killed themselves, even as as a doctor in doing an autopsy, you might lie and say that it was accidental, or at the very least, give the family like you couldn't be buried a in a level of if plausible deniability. Suicide. So there was there was huge stigma against it mm -hmm. but that same kind of stigma they had a very different Deeply perspective shameful, yes. on it so it's it's very different than our western values yeah and one of the most notable and frankly intimidating aspects of both japanese soldiers and civilians during world war ii was their utter willingness to enter certain death conflicts and destroy themselves rather than surrender this is in no small part due to the degree well, it, in which they it, it had did. been it terrified American soldiers. They values. were not used to encountering, like, the idea of a Japanese kamikaze was something that scared the absolute crap out of people. Yeah, like, the idea of somebody who cannot win, 
but will not surrender, even, like, civilians. Because here's the thing, like, Japanese soldiers, like, they're average five foot It's three. terrifying. Americans are still <laughs> terrified of them. Even though they are vastly Because, like, I have stayed home sick from work <laughs> it's terrifying. because I felt itchy. Like, I'm not, I'm not dealing with somebody who's willing to just completely destroy themselves for literally any cause. Like, no, I'm going home. I changed my mind. You win. This is whatever we're fighting about. You win. This is not mm. worth it. Yeah. Can you imagine killing yourself for, like, Queen Elizabeth wow. II? Was... I don't mean for sexual wow. gratification, which I would do. <laughs> oh my god. But, like, just because, like, she... <laughs> All you have to do is ask, Liz. It's... But... I think I, I, I don't think it should be expected is all. <laughs> you can deter me from pretty much anything if I have to go upstairs to get to it. That's all the deterrence I need. <laughs> like if if you're the sort of person who has ever like been watching a show you hate, looked across the couch at your remote control, and then just kept watching the show, you are not ready to be part of the Japanese <laughs> army. soft 21st century fuck. And as barzard as it is to think about, there were many, s- still many, living former right. samurai well into the 20th century. Think they did. There's photos of them. They were around for a very long time. They're not like a medieval phenomenon. <laughs> No, like, we think of them as, like, oh, yeah, like, old-timey warriors, like knights. When Europeans first yeah, came bank to Japan, the like, there it's... were samurai. <laughs> <laughs> like, samurai came after the, the uh... like, the founding of Nintendo, I think. Let me check. Damn nope, it. they came. Sh- they ended slightly before the the founding of Nintendo. Nintendo uh, had, came <laughs> about a well, decade to, too late. They had for to samurai. find something else to do. <laughs> if we can't be samurai, yeah, so they, they couldn't we're have played Pokemon. So many things happen all the time, and they happen yeah, concurrently in weird ways that don't make sense. In my brain, that are often upsetting. <laughs> That's like how, um, oh, who is it? Martin Luther King Jr. and Anne Frank were born in the same year. Every time that's pointed out to me, it completely blows my mind. Also, if, if Martin Luther King every Jr. Time. and Anne every Frank single were time. both alive today, they would be in their early 90s, which also messes me up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah, time. <laughs> And that's one of the things that, like, is really weird is, like, we constantly see them, like, Martin yeah, Luther King in pictures, like, it's always in black and white. They had just... color photography. We have color photos of him. He feels like it a much more... It feels older there's, there's people, when you constantly like, put it in black and white. Alive. If he hadn't been assassinated, it's not inconceivable that he would still be here. Until very recently, I think John Lewis, uh, until his death, I think last yeah, year, the idea that Anne Frank could March still be alive somewhere, like, battling, staying safe from COVID, is wild. 
the years after the surrender under military occupation by the Americans are pretty rough, especially judging by the numerous accounts of citizens starving to death on their allotted rations because they refused to patronize the black market. Said rations likewise included just 12 sheets of toilet paper per week per family, which is probably less important than the whole great. starvation it's, thing, this but is the implications <laughs> haunt me. Horrifying historical fact you never wanted to know. This is the origins of the panty fetish that Japan is known for among mouth-breathing white men in North America. It's because the American men in Japan had a taste for local prostitutes, and underwear is not a part of the traditional Japanese wardrobe, but they started wearing it because American soldiers liked it, creating a permanent and deeply rooted connection in the Japanese psyche between sex work and underwear. You're welcome. <laughs> it, it's, it's like a less devastating but still horrifying version of Godzilla's actually yeah, about the, the bombings that, like, of near Nagasaki and Japanese culture are just like <laughs> They have very sad origins in the American occupation of Japan. Things were more mixed for the literary world. Uh, on the one hand, the release of paper stores and the end of wartime censorship and publication bans meant that there was a massive exp expansion in literary publications. On the other hand, this meant that the competition was fierce and largely dominated by older, established writers. <laughs> uh, they get <laughs> they they had a, a lot of, of thoughts backed up. Uh, it's like There's if Stephen a lot King wasn't allowed to publish for like in the war years. six straight years and then he just released all like... 27 novels at once. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, you would or not be able to him. escape him. <laughs> he would wipe out an entire forest. <laughs> but along with disbanding the Ministry of Censorship, American General Headquarters ordered the release of la a large number of political prisoners from Japanese prisons, many of them communist writers. This was not a uniformed expansion of free speech, however, as GHQ likewise blacklisted and purged from public roles a long list of literary war criminals given to them by left-wing writers and critics. Many on the list had been um, Mishima's direct patrons and supporters in the literary world, though some others saved their careers through a calculated pivot to liberalism. The war was effectively the end of the Japanese Romantic School, due to the association between traditionalism, nationalism, and a dangerous bend towards fascism in the view of both the American authorities and the liberals and leftists that now ruled the Japanese literary world. Ministry of Censorship or no, Japanese media and literature continue to be heavily controlled, albeit by a different set of values in a new authority determined to Nobody's erase any sign of pre-war Japanese Japan. Three days after the surrender, another of Mishima's former mentors, literary critic Hasuda Zenmei, had shot and killed his superior officer in Manchuria before turning his gun on himself after the superior had voiced that oh, there would no longer be a difference a between the emperor reaction. and the common people. If, if that was how people regularly reacted to political opinions, I would be a <laughs> lot more circumspect around you the really staff canteen. You really gotta watch what you say. Oh, I... shit. <laughs> yes. I would. I would be careful with my language. When Mishima learned of Hasuda's death a year later, he personally contributed to the memorial service. 
In total, the literary environment of post-war Japan meant that Mishima struggled to publish through most of the following years and was largely ignored by critics even when he did. The deepest darkness for Mishima, however, was not the surrender or even his own professional difficulties, but the death of his younger sister, Mitsuko, who developed a fever and quickly fell into a coma in October 1945. Mishima would come to the squalid, understaffed hospital after class every day to sit by his sister's side and tend to her. According to Mishima's own later recollections, the death of his sister in the shadow of the war was perhaps this the guy's darkest not having time a in his great life early when life. he felt closest to death. Nothing is going well for him. He's not having a great anything. Around the same time, Mishima claimed that he had been devastated by the fact that the sister of a classmate had agreed to marry another man in response to Mishima's own waffling. But my primary source, John Nathan, an American translator who knew Mishima personally, put some very oh. meaningful quotes around the pronoun her. Uh, according to Shizue, in an aside to Nathan, her son had drunken himself into a stupor upon hearing of the marriage, oh. Despite that, as a there's, rule, there's a lot Mishima going on drank. here. Like, I don't know who this person was, but we're putting I'm air quotes around. She, a, I've got some not questions. Not thinking it was a woman. Okay. They were very meaningful. Like show, like I guess it's hard to tell if he has a genuine romantic interest in women at any point, or if he's strictly homosexual throughout his life but either way that's not easy it's not an easy thing to manage oh let's do it yeah i'm i'm going to get into it in a in a few paragraphs Mishima graduated from the recently renamed Tokyo University in 1947, then spent less than nine months as a bureaucrat in the finance ministry, again on his father's wishes, before growing tired of it and resigning to become a novelist full-time. Hardly a sure bet given his lack of critical recognition. In March 1948, Mishima wrote an essay denouncing the idea that his generation should give in to despair and allow themselves to be killed by their own anguish. This is one of the first outward signs that Mishima had come to see his own glorification of suicide and death as self-destructive. In July 1949, Mishima published his second novel, Confessions of a Mask, a heavily autobiographical and brutal dissection of both his reckless nihilistic aestheticism his frankly sadomasochistic homosexuality, and the extreme degree to which he hid his true self behind a false persona. While the book was a massive critical and popular success, it was in many ways a self-conscious attempt to leave his obsession with death behind him. And in that sense, it was a failure. Mishima's meteoric success soon made him the primary breadwinner of his family so, and completely success. altered his I mean, I'm gonna say, If he was alive today, he would 100% have a man bun. He would he would drink micro brews and he, he would spend would. a lot of time listening to mandolin music in his dorm room. He would not be a fun guy if he was alive today. <laughs> I don't even think he'd drink uh, micro brews. I think he'd drink organic some kombucha if I'm being listening to fully Sylvia Plath books on tape. Just he's gonna be a fun guy. He, he's kind of weird in that he loves shocking people, he loves to be very grotesque, but he's also in many ways very concerned with propriety and a bit of a prude. Japan has a very different history of legal discrimination against homosexuality from other countries. 
in the sense that it was only ever illegal for seven years, imported from Western legal traditions in 1872 during the Meiji Restoration, then quickly reformed. Traditional Japanese religions like Shinto had no real condemnation of homosexuality, and for a long time, Japan's elites even had a Grecan-style culture of apprenticeship-based pederasty. Uh, attitudes towards homosexuality grew more negative with Western influence, but it was never the they point don't of controversy have the same in moral panic that it was in the West. They don't about sexuality that, that Western countries do. It's, uh, it, they don't actually have legal gay marriage in Japan, mm-hmm. but they support it. It's, uh... No. It's been sort of a tacit, like... There's a certificate Not instead. necessarily acceptance, but, a, like... Tolerance. It's always sort of been tacitly like tolerated. Very much so. Nobody is, like, scandalized by it to the degree that, like, Christian faith-based Western cultures have. But it also hasn't had the same, like, resurgent pride movement that Western cultures have had. It's complicated. We all judge from our own social context what is and is not normal, what is and is not an indicator of progressivism or conservatism. So a lot of the time when we look at Japanese culture, we you know, like we see like freely published pornography, we see even like very, very homoerotic works going back for centuries with no seeming problem. We look at that and we go like, oh, this is a progressive culture. No, that's, it's just that your value system and your political system will never map on exactly to another culture's, and that is especially true for a culture that has been historically and con- <laughs> it's, as had, consistently weird as Japan. influences at unusual times. Japan is, on the whole, quite a conservative country. It is quite a conservative culture, but that conservatism Not doesn't everybody look is, the same is as, as it does as the West. In the West. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know... The, it, it, the world is more complicated than mm-hmm. left-wing and right-wing. Japan hasn't forced LGBTQ issues into a civil rights crisis in quite the same way that Western countries did with open persecution. There hasn't been the same clash between, like, Japanese law enforcement, the Japanese legal system, and LGBTQ community, but they have their own issues that they're dealing with. It's just different. It's not better. It's, it's much not more worse. of a it's theme in, in general in Eastern artwork than it was in Western artwork from the same time period. You couldn't do it. You had to hide your homosexuality mm-hmm. really well in Western art. It had to be an yeah, oily that's, that's saint getting like stabbed. That's what things like Sebastian come out of. <laughs> and as we can tell from Mishima, sublimated sexuality sometimes comes out in weird ways. But for all that Mishima had published an entire novel essentially announcing to the nation his undying thirst for dick and death, uh, he probably wasn't an active participant of Tokyo's gay community at this point in so much as he was a spectator. As research for his 1951 novel, Forbidden Colors, he spent a great deal of time frequenting the gay cafes and bars that sprung up post-war, mostly to service a sizable population of gay foreigners, including American soldiers. He usually brought a friend to bolster his courage and spent the entire time watching and taking notes from the sidelines. 
Maruyama Akihiro, a drag performer at Mishima's favorite cabaret, said that Mishima had an extremely perceptive eye for beauty and that he was always That's, looking at himself. Again, just super healthy. All he of this saw. sounds super healthy. Like, there's this quote that's used in Iron in the Soul by Henry Rollins, who was very much inspired by Mishima. Uh, Yukio Mishima said that he could not entertain the idea of romance if he was not strong. Uh, romance is such a strong and overwhelming passion. A weakened body cannot sustain it for long. Even though his literature is relentlessly horny, in his personal life he's very controlled and I think ashamed of himself physically to the point where he has trouble approaching people in the real he world seems and realizing most of his fantasy. He's got some, some body image issues it would seem. The fact that he his only criteria for a wife was short and won't read my shit. That's okay. <laughs> Mishima occasionally made pseudo-romantic overtures with women, but seemed more interested in the concept of courtship than the realities of a heterosexual relationship. In particular, the fact that he brought his mother along on many of his dates was probably a heavy dapter oh. on the interest of those oh. few feminine romantic prospects. <laughs> and the, the fact that he's he's refers to his mother so formally, it just <laughs> it sounds like some American psycho shit. It's I it'd be a no for me, and I have said yes to some real turds. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a man's- a boy's best friend is his mother. Mishima had multiple publishers, and unlike many creatives and authors, was utterly punctual in his deadlines, even despite his extreme prolificness, wow. delivering multiple projects in a given month. Compared to the average writer who spent their time drinking, smoking, and philandering, Mishima lived a highly orderly well, life- Well, I, I struggle to achieve advice. even a thing a month, so I feel attacked. Quote a joke he once made to his editor, Most writers are perfectly normal in the head and just carry on like wild oh. men. I behave normally, but I'm sick He's inside. He's very self-aware, in a way Apparently that probably that frightened funny. a lot of people. By the mid-50s, the Japanese media had developed something of an obsession with Mishima. He likewise developed a significant international profile. In the 60s, he was the uh, first Japanese celebrity to be called a superstar. Part of the fascination was his public persona and eccentric style. He was unusually Hollywood for a Japanese public figure at the time, wearing dark sunglasses, pointy oh, black yes. shoes, and loud shirts unbuttoned most of the way down his chest, revealing gold yes, chains and various medallions from Italy and Greece. <laughs> you dress like Tony Montana. <laughs> I, I get it now. Now you see I, why I said Hunter S. Thompson, right don't you? That is some Hunter S. Thompson shit right there. Just down to the <laughs> loud Hawaiian shirts. He he started out so such a quiet, nice young if boy. If you ever looked in the mirror and so been like, my clothes aren't annoying direction. enough. You get you get where he's coming from. <laughs> I'm filled with shame, and I want you to look at me! Look at me! Uh, when he decided to become a movie star in 1960, it was playing a street tough in a cool jacket who dies tragically. 
The plot demanded he be at least somewhat believably heterosexual, a, but the exasperated director the feminine could not stereotype? get it out of Is him. that what we're dancing around? No, no, like that is that is not even slightly what it was. I, I'll 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 go I'll quote directly from the book. The director uh, Yasuzo Masumura is said to have driven Mishima mercilessly. The scenes which brought him to the most abuse were those with his beautiful co-star, Ayako Awakao. Masumura was determined that the hero should be both tender and gruff, but the tenderness simply wasn't there, so he reshot interminably, working the crew far into the night and making it clear that Mishima was to blame. Finally, threw up his hands and screamed, wow. You like to slap her so much? Go oh, ahead, no. slap away! Uh, <laughs> in the final version... There is scarcely an encounter between Mishima and his lady where he is not slapping her. What? Sometimes tenderly what? on the back, but mostly gruffly like, you know in the what? face. Let's just fill this movie with love slaps. No one will notice. What? It's the sixties. But yeah, he he could not come across as like affectionate. Fuck. fuck. So he's just slapping the shit out of his co-host. The screen actors oh, would shit over sideways if you tried that today. <laughs> <laughs> Mishima's late 20s and early 30s was a period in his life least marked by open fatalism where he even managed wow. to write a single novel that was neither suicidal nor horny <laughs> The Sound of Waves <laughs> It nonetheless contains a heterosexual sex scene that lingers far too long in a man and like describes the woman in an oddly masculine fashion pecs on a woman It's my favorite I like them bulky <laughs> <laughs> I like them large. Yeah, they're 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 smooth size. I was gonna say she's the hairiest lips woman and hairy chests. <laughs> <laughs> Her suit. Oh, I like how low the bar is. It's like, well, he wrote something that wasn't openly suicidal or just about cum. So, <laughs> you know. Art. Healthy. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's like the the contrast in his public life is he's just like, doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, and everything he likes, writes is just like, I want to get fucked by death. <laughs> <laughs> he's I'm a very to third base with the to Grim Reaper. He <laughs> yeah, it's all just about getting stabbed to death. Mid-coitus in his mind. It's fine. <laughs> uh, he was in many ways determined to cure himself of his morbid fascination and physical frailty. Aww. First by learning to swim in 1952, then by boxing in 1953 and 1954. Until yeah, friends begged him to stop for the sake of his own bodily integrity. Medically broken. <laughs> Getting... Getting punched in the head repeatedly is not usually good for your mental or physical health. No, I mean, like, he wasn't a great yeah, swimmer, the, but at least when he's swimming, no one's punching injury. him. <laughs> it's just much lower. It's much lower. In, in 1955, he began weightlifting and bodybuilding. That's a kind of adorable. In which he some Captain America some shit right there. Yeah, there's this, uh, there's this, actually, this famous picture of him where he's, like, 
he's, you know, he's, he's doing a squat and he's like, oh, he's all proud of himself. And like, literally the first time I ever did a weighted squat was two weeks ago. And Aww. I was already doing he's twice little... what he was doing. Okay, in fairness, he's a little guy. <laughs> like it's, and it's... you are built like a pizza hut. He's a little guy. So... <laughs> 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 I've got a barreled chest and I speak in a tenor. I I think I've got more testosterone in my body People than he had at the, the height of puberty. Like, well, that is a sturdy gal. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably got a thicker mustache if I'm being fully honest. I'm I'm not a I'm not a gentle lady. I'm not a, a demure fragile. Your gal. body took that second X um, chromosome as a suggestion. <laughs> like, okay, thanks for the note. I'll keep it in mind. And then just did what it wanted. <laughs> Cool, whatever. I understand that, like, that's a phenotype you It's not you the vision have. I had for this body. <laughs> I once had a, a lovely young man look me deep in my eyes and whisper, you're probably very sensitive <laughs> to testosterone. Physician, uh, he was uh, he was the dude oh, who was helping me weight good. lift lift good. two He's weeks ago. He's creating a monster, and I hope he knows that. The last yeah. thing you needed was additional physical strength. <laughs> so that they're gonna need to send in the army to get you out of a public fountain. <laughs> yeah, he is. I think the only person in my life who's ever looked at me and just said like. You know what this girl <laughs> in needs? In much the same way that like, Jurassic muscle. Park was like, hey, we should breed bigger dinosaurs. Like, that's, I'm getting similar vibes. I'm already terrified. <laughs> this is basically a national emergency, not a personal best. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Jessica-related <laughs> national lockdown. We're gonna get out of COVID and we're gonna be immediately sent in because I've I've climbed up the CN Tower and I'm swatting at biplanes. <laughs> don't don't give me access to anabolics. Oh, and the your world brother's is not prepared. prepared to watch you grow such a luscious mustache compared to his. <laughs> he does have a pretty good beard, but he did he had a Aww. weird bald spot right under his chin for a very long time. <laughs> My boyfriend's trying so desperately, but all he can pull off is, like, a Three Musketeers beard. It just makes me look even more aggressively French. (laughs) Mishima was even uh, asked in uh, 1963 to pose for the entry on bodybuilding in a to-be-published encyclopedia. This guy was, like, just doing quests in life. Uh... Oh, yeah, like, in the meantime, like, he's just, like, an incredibly prolific writer, and then he's just like, I want to try Kendo, which he did in, uh, in 1959. Like, he's not he that old. He's, quite he's still, like, in his 20s to 30s, and he's been to, like, law school, no. the military, had catastrophic health issues, had a weird relationship with two maternal figures, has, like, I think gotten married at this point? Not yet, maybe? Ha- not quite. No, he he's he he he's come out as gay. No one has 
paid attention to the fact that he's come out as gay. Traveled the world. It's kind of, he's got I'm, like eight different though. backstories. You could come out as gay. It didn't mean that you weren't going to have a wife. One needed a wife, socially. So, you know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how thirsty for jizz you, you are. You, you get married like a proper furniture. Japanese man. <laughs> Yeah, you can you can publish all the homoerotic it's chest like hair stroking really fantasies you blender. want. You it's get just married. It's part of adulthood. You just have to do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's part of the checklist. You know, get a house, get a mortgage, <laughs> get a wife, go. put her right next to the blender. Speaking of which, uh, in 1958, Mishima began looking for a wife, partially for respectability in the public to- eye and partially in response to <laughs> total Alan parents. Turing move. His <laughs> his father was concerned by the impropriety of his older son remaining a bachelor years after his younger son's marriage, as well as the rumor of Mishima's homosexuality. Like, if I which admit something, really feel in public, like it's a, rumor, not a rumor, but okay. <laughs> Yeah, like, when I publish several no- novels essentially saying I love cock, no, pretty much I don't confirmed. expect it to be a rumor at that point. <laughs> yeah, I, I consider that to be confirmation enough. But uh, arranging a marriage proved difficult, uh, both in that Mishima was, as ever, uh, highly particular, Aww. and that most women very much did not find him attractive, to the point that in response to a poll asking whether or not respondents would prefer to marry Mishima or Crown Prince Tsugu, over oh! half of respondents oh! declared that they would rather oh kill themselves. <laughs> death. <laughs> I choose oh. death. death. It's gotta help the self-esteem. Really death. <laughs> half of women, like, death is better. Part of the problem was, like, his his writing is so fucking creepy and so thirsty you know, to die. Yeah, a and, lot of like, teenage not girls like be Marilyn into Manson, but they didn't really necessarily want to marry him. It's, it's like it's a cool fantasy when you're 15, but your average adult woman... Uh, isn't looking for, like, just a dude whose choice of pornography is just video after video of <laughs> you sparrows don't running into windows. You build a life like, with that man. <laughs> yeah, like, there's probably not much of a future. Uh, he also apparently just had, like, a really oh, no. muscular upper body, but it's never just... quite figured out leg day. It's a tragic situation. <laughs> yeah, He's so... like a lopsided Tim Burton. It's just, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, his legs aren't bad. They're not bad, but, like, at the time, they were just, like, uh, noticeably disproportionate to the rest so of his he's body. Got a lot working against him. <laughs> he also keeps bringing his mom on dates. Like, he's really not making this easy for himself. You've got, like, a lot yeah, of strength against you, buddy, but the mom thing, that's on own. you. Like, that's fully in your control. <laughs> While there were plenty of fawning fans drawn to him, he specifically did not mar- want to marry a woman interested in his work. So he eventually settled on Sugiyama Yoko, 
a respectable 19-year-old university student who didn't give a shit about his novels and was She's willing just to like, yeah, speculation that I his don't work care. would come first. Yeah, and like most marriages are arranged at this point, it's not that weird no, no, of, no. A, of a thing to ask for. It's not a love marriage. But what was weird is oh. before his marriage, he burned all of his diaries what today. Which isn't suspicious <laughs> at all. Nothing too disturbing, I'm sure. That's that's one of the difficulties of researching Mishima, I found, was that just that, like, make it difficult. he burned all of his diaries. And, like, despite the fact he has this huge literary production, so much of his life and public persona were so odd, it's really hard to tell, like, Right, to what extent is he playing the and role what is of real. quirky artist. Like, we only have what he decides to publish, mostly, other than interviews with his loved ones, who he was not particularly frank with. He wasn't particularly frank with anybody. He was very good at making people feel like he was being intimate with them, <laughs> but he mostly didn't confide in people. He just ghosted you once you were beneath really him. And that makes it difficult to really understand his, his internal life. That's, that's his number one move. Yoko appears to have known at least to some degree about his homosexuality, according to an account of a poet who attempted to blackmail Mishima in 1968 by threatening to tell his wife. Mishima simply ignored the threat, oh. and Yoko later let oh, him know that the blackmailer it. had followed through. Yeah, you know, he, he told he, he told Mishima's wife, and she was like, This woman okay. was unflappable. <laughs> She's just like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. All right. Do what you do what you want. Like, whatever. Unfazed. <laughs> it's, it's unclear uh, whether she didn't believe it or she simply ignored it. And she and her children successfully sued writer uh, Fukushima Jiro for publication of Mishima's letters to him on the grounds of copyright due to the implication in Fukushima's writing that Mishima was gay. Just talking uh, about These were it. not love letters. They were just letter letters. In the view of John Nathan, Mishima probably just made clear that his private life was his private like life and that he wouldn't do anything to draw a new scandal. Homosexuality has been part of human existence forever, and there's been plenty of marriages throughout history where there's sort of an understanding. You know, Alan Turing very nearly married his close friend, mm -hmm. and she was willing to go through with the marriage even after he confided that he was gay. Plenty of women just didn't care, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Speaking for myself, like, if you're in the 1950s, you're reasonably fond of the guy, and, like, you're not allowed to have a bank account uh, unless a man signs for you, and you had, think he's yeah, willing to go along deep with it. Like, whatever, you yeah, you madly, know. blindly, completely just... in love with the person that you're marrying. It's a pretty recent phenomenon, actually. Yeah, like, can we coexist? Yeah, it's can they more of a business relationship. Am I gonna find them, like, naked on the lawn, like, scratching my name into the dirt? Like, no. As long as they don't scratch the eyes out of all our photographs, like, we're good. Mishima's a, a celebrity. He's reasonably wealthy. He's got royalties coming in. He's got a productive career. He he doesn't <laughs> seem like the type to show up at your parents' My house drunk. My great uncle had a mistress for most he of his life. Drink. That his wife 
fully knew about, and she did not give a fuck. Her only rule was like, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to see her. Like, to, you know, don't be rude. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, just be polite. That's, that's been don't kind invite of an her to dinner on Christmas. For many couples. So she she genuinely may not have cared <laughs> that he was gay. Just pay the bills, give me children, we're good. <laughs> and uh, and also, Mishima and his wife had a somewhat unconventional relationship for the time, in that he not only brought her to parties with him, but likewise actively solicited her opinion and would draw her into conversation in front of male colleagues and friends where women would not typically be included. Yeah, by all appearance, he seems to have genuinely enjoyed her company. He was likewise an I mean, attentive hey, and present father do worse. to their two like, children. Ideally, Dad doesn't go on to start an ultra-nationalist cult, but nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah. No father is <laughs> Even if perfect. they're simping for the Emperor. You just love them anyway. <laughs> they may be simping for the Emperor and completely down to die, preferably with as much stabbing as possible, but they're still your dad. That's what's important. She apparently allowed her husband a great deal of his eccentricities and the privacy he asked for, although she did firmly request that he stop bringing his weightlifting buddies home to drink, strip down, oil up, and pose for a photographer. I, I don't necessarily don't do disagree. <laughs> You've been very please, accommodating. Please stop oiling other Don't men do it in, in the house. <laughs> I think it's a reasonable boundary. <laughs> it's it's not like we're looking at that where you're like, you you heartless <laughs> bitch. Yeah. No, I mean I like, come on, not on the carpet. <laughs> She likewise deeply disliked her husband's decision to pose nude in a vaguely sadomasochistic photographic study published under the I name mean, Punishment of what Roses did this in not 1963. Do? He was a, in a movie, like, he's posing nude and covered in blood? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of that. There was There's so many naked photographs. Uh, but on his end, Mishima put his foot down utterly towards Yoko's desire to take up sports car racing. Uh, so <laughs> Please you know, don't die in a violent car explosion. You have children. <laughs> <laughs> also not unreasonable. This seems like a very healthy relationship. <laughs> Surprisingly so, even. It's probably the healthiest relationship he's had with a woman ever. <laughs> I'm I mean, I, very much I including no both his mother stand. and this grandmother. This sounds like a pretty reasonable relationship. Uh, Yoko likewise found herself often in conflict with Shizue, who struggled with her son's attention being directed towards another woman. But unlike Shizue herself, it's a low Yoko bar. Was far more <laughs> Shizue let of her like, mother-in-law steal her child. Meanwhile, Yoko's just like, hey, yeah, uh, no biggie, but, like, tell your mom to fuck off. <laughs> it also helped that, like, Mishima just cared what Yoko thought. <laughs> so he was actually willing to play middleman there. For all his emphasis on respectability, Mishima very much enjoyed shocking people. And while I will not be doing a full list of his antics or publications in this vein, 
I will make special note of Madame de Sade, an all-female play he wrote about the oh. wife of the Marquis de Sade, and My Friend Hitler, a play inspired by the assassination oh. of Ernst Rum in The Night of Long Knives. Uh, apparently, critics could never quite decide whether the play was supposed to be pro-fascism or anti-fascism, and having read the text, I'm not actually sure it's about anything at all. That. <laughs> um, Yeah. Oh. During one production, Mishima even played Hitler himself. He's got quite the resume. Uh, really the precursor to Jojo on. Rabbit. Yeah. Actor, artist, author, Hitler. <laughs> but that's kind of all we have for Mishima's early life, his artistic ambitions, his 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 early 30s. Next time we will be talking about his later life, by which I mean his 30s again not a very long life to go through but we'll also be going through his descent into ultranationalist politics cult, and cult, the cult, creation cult, of cult, that cult, cult that you know everybody about. <laughs> <laughs> one more time <laughs> actually considering it ended with disembowelment once. just the once <laughs> and i have been janelle I have been Jessica. We don't have a tag. We don't have a sign off anymore. <laughs> I think we can just cut it off. Uh, I think we just. Okay. I think we can just cut off at Janelle. I think that works. I think that's fine.